Ken, we're back. Welcome back. Hey, man. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us again. This is episode four of The Road to Rescue here on Parable of the Vineyard. And this week, man, I'm I'm excited. I know I was excited last week. Um, Ken, you weren't able to be with us last week, but uh, we're glad to have you back this week. I'm extra excited this week, not just because I have you back, but because we're going to be going over a really fun slash controversial topic. So there's going to be, a, we expect a lot of comments in the sec, in the comment section, but um, yeah, Sean, that seems to be the common denominator with us. Eh? There's always, right, it's yeah. always controversial. We always start off with, it's going to be controversial folks. <laughs> we like to dig into the topics that you don't really see addressed that too often in regular church services. That's right. Um, and that's, and there's a reason for it because as you're going to see tonight, um, it takes, you know, it, it takes, um, we're going to go front to back through throughout the book and the EBIBs. And we're going to show uh, the subject that we're talking about tonight, which is going to be Sheol, which is the title of this, uh, of this episode is called hell matters. And um, uh, you know, hell is kind of in parentheses actually, because it's, you know, hell is the generic translation of the word Sheol in the Hebrew. And uh, we're going to be talking about everything pertaining to Sheol tonight. So it's, it's hell matters tonight. Um, and, and how it relates to the day of the Lord when he comes back, because it's a, it's a component piece in the, everything that's going on. And actually, since the creation, it's a component piece. It's been designed there for a reason uh, for the moment he comes back. So from the very beginning, it's, it's wild. It's wild to me. Yeah, everything's intentional, Sean. He's, he's placed yeah. everything within his creation for, for reasons. It's, it's awesome. Ken, have you ever seen those 3D models, um, those 3D uh, printers? You know, they print from the bottom up. That's the way I look at scripture the more I dig into it, is that he laid such a, an amazing foundation that something he put in on that first base layer is going to matter when Yeshua reigns at the top. And that's just, he just built an amazing house uh, literarily through, through his word given to his prophets. And it, it just excites me. And we'll jump right into it because um, we've got a lot of a lot of ground to cover in scripture. So if you're if you're following along with paper and pen or whatnot, or or maybe you know a MacBook taking notes, um, it's going to be fun. I think you'll have a lot of good notes. Uh, we're probably not going to be commentating as much simply because we have so many scriptures to get through. And um, but the scriptures speak for themselves, which is why we wanted to jam pack as many scriptures in this episode as we could because they speak for themselves. So hopefully at the end of this. Uh, you'll come away not only understanding stuff like the souls under the altar in Revelation 6 uh, and better understanding the parable in Luke 16 that Jesus talked about, Lazarus and the rich man, but you also see some amazing information given to us through the extra Bibles, Enoch, Jubilees. And um, so I'm excited. Make sure you stay to the end. I'm excited too, Sean. And for you guys that are following along with us, uh, feel free to leave your comments, your questions in, in the chat or afterwards in the uh, comment section below the video there. And uh, we'll try to adjust, if we can, we'll try to address some of them at the end there, Sean. But as he said, uh, we got tons of scriptures to get through. So without further ado, Sean, you want to start there, bud? Yep. And we'll jump right in here, guys. The first thing we'll be looking at is Jubilees uh, chapter 2. And this is going to be basically um, verses 1 and 2. And so uh, let me just jump on the screen share real quick so everyone can read along as we go. And if you, uh, if you guys aren't familiar, Jubilees is a fun extra biblical book. Um, we love it, not just because the prophecy lines up with the day of the Lord. And it also, you know, venerates um, Torah observance. But it also is a biblical creation model book as well. So it lines up with Enoch and Genesis as far as how the creation is described. And in chapter two, it actually goes over some things 
um, about the creation model. But we're not before we get there, we're actually going to discuss verses one and two. And it says, and the angel of the presence spoke to Moses according to the word of the Lord, saying, write the complete history of the creation, how in six days the Lord God finished all his works and all that he created. And he kept Sabbath on the seventh day and hallowed it for all ages and appointed it as a sign for all his works. For on the first day he created the heavens which are above, and the earth, and the waters, and all the spirits which serve before him, the angels of the presence, the angels of sanctification, the angels and the spirit of fire, and the angels of the spirit of the winds, the angels of the spirit of the clouds, and of the darkness, and of the snow, and of hail, and of hoarfrost, and the angels of the voices, and of the thunder, and of the lightning, and the angels of the spirits of cold, and of heat, and of winter, and of spring, and of autumn, and of summer, and of all the spirits of his creatures, which are in the heavens and on the earth, he created the abysses and the darkness, even tide and night, and the light, dawn and day, which he has prepared in the knowledge of his heart. Yeah, Sean, that's a yeah, it's a, that's an amazing it's a, couple of verses there, man. And I love it just because of what you said earlier. It's it expounds upon creation details that aren't there in Genesis, right? That we aren't given specific details concerning, you know, angels. When were they created? Well. Yeah. Book of Jubilees tells us right here. And another place was created that we weren't specifically told in the book of Genesis that, you know, we want to, you know, emphasize for tonight's show. Right, Sean? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's why we'll be digging into Enoch pretty soon. So, but yeah, um, so if you guys didn't get that in verse two, um, it mentions the abysses that he created on day one. And um, Sean, Sheol is a it's an abyss, isn't it? Yes. And and we're going to get literal depictions and and. That word's going to be used in direct correlation, um, and that we see it actually loosely translated. And this is this is kind of the part that frustrates me when you are reading various translations of scripture, and you start to see how it just it'll just interchanging like it's nothing. Either call it the abyss or the pit, and you know you're like, well, wait a minute. And some of them will call it Sheol, which is its Hebrew name, and you're like, well, wait, 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 is it the you know? And so if you just call it the pit. And you're like, well, there's so much context to what Sheol actually is and the purpose for it. To just call it the pit sounds very idiomatic of just saying it's a grave and not really knowing that there's actual further intention for it. And this is why we we often see people take verses like in Ecclesiastes 9 and other places. They'll take this reference of being, you know, of how the dead no longer interact in the living. And they'll suddenly think, well, there is nothing after you die. But all the descriptions of Sheol give us a very different picture. And it all matters to the coming of the Lord in the future. So that's what we're going to go over. Um, in fact, yeah, that's right. yeah. just real quick, I was going to jump in. Uh, there is a moment here in Genesis 37. And I was going to read this next verse. But Ken, do you do you want to read in our introductory verses? Do you want to read the, the last yeah. two? Okay. All right. So I'll read Genesis 37 real quick, guys. This is the moment here where Jacob um, is is you know being told he's being lied to basically by his uh, his other sons about Joseph and they are claiming that Joseph died. They got the blood on the coat. They bring the coat to him. So Jacob is mourning. Um, he's he's sad. He thinks that Joseph was killed by a wild animal, and uh, and just in how he talks about what's what you know his state of mind is is another little inkling and reminiscence to what Sheol is. Because the reason I'm using this is because Jacob himself. He's speaking of it in a way where he understands the context of what we're going to be expounding upon in the segments of this show. So to me, they they had the Book of Enoch or something very similar, Ken, in my opinion, because they, they had a very strong contextual frame of reference when they spoke about Sheol. So here it is in Genesis 37, verse 34 and also 35. 
It says, so Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. So this going is where, down to Sheol. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where a lot of people say, well, see, he's just talking about he's going to die mourning, you know, that he's not really going anywhere. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. Sean, you know, what's ironic with this passage that you decided to use tonight is that, um, you know, you were, you were mentioning the pit earlier and mm -hmm. how it is, it is referred to as Sheol, but, um, you know, Joseph is placed in a pit by his brothers, right? Exactly. It's in the same chapter. It uses the term pit. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting wording to be used in terms of you yeah. know how Joseph is is he's hugely symbolic. And, and, yeah, he foreshadows Yeshua, right? Yeah, absolutely. He's hugely symbolic of Yeshua. I, I think um, I I read one time that a scholar had counted and they had come up with a hundred different parallels between the life of Joseph, as detailed in Genesis, with what we read in the Gospels about Yeshua, and that's pretty amazing. Um, I believe that number. But as far as translation alone, if we look at this Genesis 37 passage, am I still screen sharing? Or was I ever uh, no. screen sharing? You were. You were yeah. <laughs> Either way, I just think it's interesting that uh, just a few verses earlier, Ken, where it says, Reuben returned to the pit and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So the brothers go back to him and he's not there. And so then, um, but it's using the word pit, the one they threw, threw him into. But then later on, Jacob says, I'm going to go down to Sheol. So if Sheol was only a grave or was literally a hole in the ground, like some like to argue, then this would have been a great place to say the pit because they just used that word in the translation just a few sentences earlier. But, but it seems to me that this particular translator knew the context of what he, Jacob was talking about when he says, I will go down to Sheol in mourning uh, for my son. That's right. So that's, and that's actually where we're going to, number 16, this next passage you're about to read fits in perfectly with this idea. Yes. We'll start in verse 25 here. And it says, Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram, with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing that belongs to them, or you will be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of the tents, along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurred, sorry, spurned the Lord. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Fascinating, Sean. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the, you know, in the first few verses you read from 27 to 30, I love the direct comparison here, just saying that this was a new thing. So the way, the way that all men died was a natural death, right? And you're buried in a grave. But this was a new thing. This was something that apparently never happened before, that men would be swallowed alive into Sheol. Um, 
obviously now we would call this a sinkhole, but That's right. the connotation here is not just something that they were just taking into the ground itself, but they go all the way to Sheol. That's a, <laughs> that right. seems like a very, very deep yeah. plunge. That's a, that's a very specific uh, chute that fell, that opened up, you know? That's right. That, uh, <laughs> I see what you're saying, yes. Yeah, that would uh, pop open and they would go down alive in a shell. Now, did they stay alive? Of course not. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, when, I, when I read this, Sean, I picture them bouncing off, you know, the side of the earth that split open or right. dying of, you know, right. <laughs> their hearts failing them because of the, the sheer fall into, you know, this however long it takes could have taken minutes to get there who knows right yeah i mean if, since we can't but drill eight miles deep apparently if we believe that claim uh we have no clue how deep it would be to get to sheol but there's a famous passage in amos where uh speaking about the day of the lord you know yahweh says though they may ascend into the heavens from there i'll bring them down and though they may dig into sheol from there i'll bring them up so apparently it is accessible from the land and that's uh that's an interesting concept and um that's right. And I like, I like that passage that you just quoted too, Sean, because it gives a direct um, correlation between uh, like directions and how, you know, the depth of the directions, right? Or the height. So we have the firmament of heaven, right? As high as the heaven and as low as Sheol. So we're talking about something that's a little bit deeper than six feet under, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I understand that uh, there are contextual places where this idea of Sheol is used as a grave. We get it. Um, and that's and that can be an easy, you know, Hebrew, obviously, they can use the same word for it. That's fine. Just like you can use, like we've talked about in a few episodes ago, how the word Shomayim, the word heaven is synonymous with the firmament. Right. So that's what we'll see in Psalm 19. They use the word firmament. Uh, Psalm um, uh, Genesis 7, 11, he uses the word firmament. But yet other places, it's just spoken of as the heaven, like in Deuteronomy 10, 14, it'll say the, the most highest, you know, God of the highest heaven instead of saying the highest firmament. So it's an interchangeable concept. It just depends on the context, depending on exactly, you know, where it's what we should think about. And uh, so with number 16, you've got these guys rebelling, right? Core's rebellion. And this is where I was saying, it's not just like they were just falling into their graves because that would have been the way of all men. Had they died and then just fell down into a grave. But this is they were swallowed up by the earth itself supposedly right. down to Sheol. And I actually included another passage. I think it's in segment two in Ezekiel 31. Where we're going to go over another instance where not people, but something else was taken down into Sheol. And I think it's worth uh, juxtaposing with this idea here. Yeah. Do you want to read the last one for this one? Yeah, absolutely, man. I was going to say before we get onto this, that plus, you know, those who were bystanding, witnessing this event, they were terrified, right? Like, yeah, they were of the sheer depth of the earth that was, you know, opening up in front of them. Okay, so Psalm 30, and guys, Psalms is just loaded with, with Sheol references. I mean, there's a plethora of them, but um, the first three verses here of uh, Psalms 30 says, I will extol you, O Yahweh, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Yahweh, my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. O Yahweh, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive, that I would not go down to the pit. Yeah. So we have so they, Sheol on the pit there. Yeah, exactly. It's it's synonymous right here um, in verse three, which this is why I love context. You know, you can pull about these same concepts being spoken from other prophets and other places. It gives you a well-rounded picture of what's what's being described. And so, um, yeah, it's definitely 
referred to as a pit here. And what's more important is that the soul goes there. And we're going to read about that and we'll expound on that here shortly. That's all right. So it's uh, all right. All right, guys, that's a, a very brief introduction to this concept of shield that we see in the American canon of 66. Um, we're going to jump here into some of the extra biblicals as well as, as the regular scriptures in the American canon and um, just kind of show you kind of a back and forth here. And um, Ken, do you want to read uh, the first one here in Enoch 22? Yeah, absolutely. Cool, man. All right, Enoch 22. This is one that a lot of people trip up on when they come across the book of Enoch. They They tend to try to discredit this book because of the chapter, but I hope you guys will see that, you know, what we read in here will correspond in ways with the scriptures that are evident. All right. So starting with verse one, and thence I went to another place and he showed me in the West, another great and high mountain and of hard rock. So he is, is an angel. Enoch is being shown by an angel right now, Raphael, I believe. And there was in it four hollow places, deep and wide and very smooth. How smooth are the hollow places and deep and dark to look at. Then Raphael answered, one of the holy angels who was with me, and said unto me, These hollow places have been created for this very purpose, that the spirits of the souls of the dead should assemble therein. Yeah, that all the souls of the children of men should assemble here. And these places have been made to receive them till the day of their judgment, until their appointed period, till the period appointed, till the great judgment comes upon them. I saw the spirits of the children of men who were dead and their voice went forth to heaven and made suit. Then I asked Raphael, the angel who was with me, and I said unto him, This spirit, whose is it, whose voice goeth forth and maketh suit? And he answered me, saying, This is the spirit which went forth from Abel, whom his brother Cain slew, and he makes his suit against him till his seed is destroyed from the face of the earth, and his seed is annihilated from amongst the seed of men. Then I asked regarding it and regarding all the hollow places, why is one separated from the other? And he answered me, and he said unto me, These three have been made that the spirits of the dead might be separated. And such a division has been made for the spirits of the righteous, in which there is the bright spring of water. And as such has been made for sinners, when they die and are buried in the earth, and judgment has not been executed on them in their lifetime. Here their spirits shall be set apart in this great pain till the great day of judgment and punishment, and torment of those who curse forever, and retribution for their spirits. There he shall bind them forever. And such a division has been made for the spirits of those who make their suit, who make disclosures concerning their destruction when they were slain in the days of the sinners. Such has been made for the spirits of men who were not righteous but sinners, who were complete in transgression, and of the transgressors they shall be companions. But their spirits shall not be slain in the day of judgment, nor shall they be raised from thence. Then I blessed the Lord of glory and said, Blessed be my Lord, the Lord of righteousness, who rules forever. Yeah, that's uh, so. That's a fascinating one, Sean. Sorry. Now this is a big one, man. Because uh, what I want to do next is, since people got a good idea there, let you know. Just it is thirteen verses or fourteen verses, I believe, and it's um, you know, we, we got the hollow, smooth places that were introduced. Um, it talks about the souls of men assembled there. It talks about uh, the soul of Can or Abel himself crying out and making suit, which is interesting, and um. And then it talks about the bright spring of water. It says that the uh, the righteous are there until um, uh, because basically it, or it says both places, both the sinners and the righteous have been separated. And uh, for the unrighteous, they have not had judgment executed on them in their lifetime. 
And then, um, and also for the unrighteous in verse 13, it talks about how they will not be raised um, in the day of judgment from there. And so contextually, when we look at the first resurrection event, the day of judgment is why they're not raised because they're waiting for the great white throne judgment later, which would, which would happen at the second resurrection. And that's uh, why it says blessed and holy is everyone who takes part in the first resurrection. And it says that in Revelation 20, verse four and five. And that's how, you know, that's this idea here. But I want to read uh, Luke 16 real quick, because from everything we've studied about this, Ken, and we've studied this for a few years now, um, specifically this concept, because we've had to explain it to many people who there's a lot of misunderstanding that comes from this idea. And they think that, you know, many Christians still have a paradigm in their head from Catholic teachings, whether they realize it or not. And when they hear the word hell, they think of burning in fire. And they don't realize that the, the definition of hell, if you look it up in your Bible, every concordance will say it's Sheol. <laughs> it's the underworld. And in the Greek, in the New Testament, they'll call it Hades. And that's the term that Jesus uses in Luke 16. And I'm going to read that passage real quick because it's not a place of just burning fire as we just read. And so uh, I'm going to read that real quick. And, and we're going to go over some of these ideas and explain real quick. Luke 16, verse 19 um, through, I believe, 31 here. It says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor. Actually, uh, let me just uh, screen share this up for us real quick so that um, the folks can keep everyone kind of go along with us if they want. Verse 19, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus, so that he may dip in the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And beside all this, between you, us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they also will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he, Abraham, said back to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, and they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. All right, what's amazing about that is that um, is that this guy, can this guy, um, this this whole setting for Luke 16 parable is the description we just read in Enoch 22. It, there's a great chasm fixed between the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous are comforted. So they're, they're in a place that would seem to be, you know, this be a hollow places. Um, it seems to be that there was a bright spring of water on the righteous side, which is why the unrighteous man would be asking Lazarus to get him some water, in my opinion. Yeah, that's um, right. And then you, because they can't traverse back and forth, neither party can traverse back and forth. But apparently the unrighteous can't actually see the righteous dead in, quote unquote, the idiomatic phrase of Abraham's bosom, which is something, you know, it's another idiomatic term for Sheol. Um, but it's for the righteous side of Sheol, obviously. It's the place where the, the spirits of the righteous await the resurrection. 
And so any, you know, I just want people to draw a quick, um, you know, quickly on the, on what we just read in Enoch 22, nowhere in Enoch 22 did it mention someone being burning in torment. Now, when you look up the words that say that they're in, they're in their excrement or ex, um, what's it say in Enoch 22, ex, execrations, that's a word basically meaning um, they're complaining, right? They're crying out because they know that their judgment is going to happen at some point to where they'll be thrown into the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. So therefore, what Ken and I, uh, what we've surmised from studying and, and comparing these back and forth is that this whole concept of being in torment from the flame, since Yeshua is describing the exact scenario of Enoch 22, where these two guys are being kept, and the, the resurrection hasn't happened yet, has it, Kim? Because the guy's asking if Lazarus can go back to his family that's still alive. So he even gives us a, 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 a time frame that there hasn't been a great resurrection yet because that guy still has family that he thinks he can have saved. You know, So that doesn't tell us that this guy's in heaven, this other guy's in hell, and he can see everybody in heaven being comforted. And that, you know what I'm saying? I've actually heard that explanation before. And it breaks my heart because I'm like, no. No, they're, even the even the souls, the righteous souls who are in their good side of Sheol, they're making suit, which means they are offering their own complaint. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but they're fine, like in you know uh, legal terms, they're filing a suit. And that's what we're going to read later in Revelation 6, as they're saying, hey, when will you avenge our blood? Just like Abel's crying out, and it gives us the contextual reference that it was because Cain slew him, that he's crying out. Because right. he's yeah. wanting vengeance, he's waiting for the blood avenger, which is a part of the law, which is the role that Yeshua fills on the day of the Lord for all of them. But at the same time, I think it's fascinating to note, and I'm going to put up a little um, a little graphic that I made, Ken, uh, for everyone yeah, to sure. kind of keep. Sean, I was just going to say there in verse 28 of Luke 16, where it says the word torment, where it's um, basically saying, you know, send someone up there, so that my brothers will not also come to this place of torment. I'm not sure what right. the Greek word is, Sean. Um, but we basically discern that it's essentially what it's it's referring to is like an emotional anguish, like a um, waxing of sorrow, right? Right. It's a it's emotional despair. It's not a it's not a word in that particular verse. It's not a word being used for physical torture. Because That's right. And actually, second Baruch, Sean, um, I don't think we're actually going to get to that one tonight, but it mentions that at the resurrection, these unrighteous souls on that side of Sheol are going to wax away even more when they see that those on the good side of Sheol receive their resurrected immortal bodies and, and right. they have to stay there essentially. Yeah. Until the and judgment. it's not talking about their bodies waxing away more. It's just about their emotional state. They're getting That's more right. grievous, more mourning and more sorrowful because they're realizing, oh, those guys are getting resurrected. I'm going to, the next time I get dealt with is going to be at the great white throne judgment and that's going to be not good i'll be thrown in the lake of fire you know and then extinguished from existence which is why yeshua tells us in matthew 10 28 that we should not fear man who can kill just the body but that we should fear god who can kill both the soul and the body in gehenna and that, that is another bad translation in that verse where the translators just just lazily sloppily yeah. threw in the word hell but it's actually the word gehenna which is specifically the lake of fire so, you know, this whole concept of burning in hell forever, that's not, no, guys, that's not, it's a Catholic term. So if people can, um, I'm screen sharing right now, a little diagram I made for folks. Can you see it, Ken? I can. It looks great, okay. Sean. Good job, buddy. Enoch 22 on one side, basically deep, wide, hollow places. It's the great chasm Jesus is mentioning in Luke 16. Righteous spirits set apart. They're both separated in the parable he's talking about. 
unrighteous are held separate until great judgment. None may cross over, right? Because there's a point of reason why they're being separated. There's a fountain of water in Enoch 22. We see that in verse, verse 3 and verse 10. Um, there's water on the righteous side and uh, that, you know, the, the rich man's asking Lazarus to dip his finger into. Um, the unrighteous awaiting punishment and judgment. And that's where you get this torment from the flame. Because the unrighteous in Enoch 22, they know, they know that that's what's coming, right? And so um, that was good. That was a good graphic, Sean. I must say, you used the right colors because um, I think it is in Second Brook as well, where Shields referred to as an aqueous womb. Right. Yeah, so I was going to use water, one that had water, water bubbles on it, but I was like, no, let's just go with a solid water color. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Um, so it's a. Uh, and, and, and this is what we've talked about before, where at the first resurrection, like Jesus mentions in John 3, we talk about being born of water and spirit. And so right. because Sheol's mentioned as, an, as it's kind of like a watery womb, you know, in reference. So, okay, man, there's uh, uh, the, the next passages that we had set up. Um, did you want to read the second address part real quick? It's only yeah, seven. I'll do it real quick, Sean. And guys, this is just kind of. Um, expounding further upon just like you know the, the torment that we just talked about that's in Sheol. So this is in Second Ezra's uh, chapter eight, starting with verse fifty-three, just to give some context. It says the root of evil is sealed up from you, illness is banished from you, and death is hidden. Hell has fled and corruption has been forgotten. Sorrows have passed away, and in the end of the treasure of immort immortality is made manifest. Therefore, do not ask any more questions about the multitude of those who perish. For they also received freedom, but they despised the Most High and were contemptuous of his law and forsook his ways. Moreover, they, they have even trampled upon his righteous ones and said in their hearts that there is not God, though knowing full well that they must die. For just as the things which I have predicted await you, so the thirst and torment which are prepared await them. For the Most High did not intend that men should be destroyed, but they themselves who were created have defiled the name of him who had made them. And have been ungrateful to him who prepared life for them. So basically, you know, I just wanted to point out in verse 59 here, Sean, that it says that thirst and torment are prepared for those who do not love Yahweh and his laws. Sean, I think you're muted there. I'm not sure. Sorry. Sorry, guys. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I was just saying that's that thirst and, and hunger. That's what we're reading about in Enoch 22 and Luke 16 is that they are thirsting. Um, and you're because he's asking for a drop of water. And I would equate that that water. Oh. Sean, you still there, bud? Oh, hello. Hey, guys, can you can you hear us? I'm not sure if uh, Sean got cut off there or not. Adam, if you're around, I'm not sure. Okay, so oh, Sean just messaged saying that his power went out. Okay, um, so guys, the um, the second segment here, um, I could start just uh, with reading of of the prayer of Manasseh. I could start with that one. Actually, I wanted to wait for for Sean to read um, Isaiah fourteen. Are there any questions in the chat while we're we're waiting for Sean? He shouldn't be long, guys. Sorry about that. I don't think the uh, the enemy wants us talking about this very much. Yeah, sorry, Linda. I see that. Yeah, Sean got cut off. His power was shut off. 
Okay, so guys, I'm just going to start with Isaiah 14 here, um, starting in verse 9, and I think we're going to go pretty much to like verse 20. This is a really interesting um, chapter just because it mentions uh, Lucifer, who I had often thought for a long time. Actually, is this is it this one or is it 16? I can't remember, but anyways, this is this is in reference um, surrounding this chapter. It talks about how Lucifer. Um, wanted to send into heaven and then be above the stars of God and all that stuff. And I, I used to believe that that was just a, a name for Satan, but um, I did some research not too long ago and actually with the help of Sean came to the conclusion that Lucifer is just a derivative name of Nimrod. And uh, you can really discern that if you, if you understand the context within where that name is used. And, and Sean, I know he did a great job last week um, talking about the Assyrian Nimrod, Apollo, Osiris. And so anyways, guys, yeah. So I just want to set that up for verse nine here. It says, Sheol from beneath is excited over you. And you is in reference to, to Nimrod, essentially. To meet you when you come, it arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. Oh, okay, sorry guys. It is. It was this this uh, this chapter. So this is what we're talking about here. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will send to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his tomb, but you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. So guys, this is just a crazy chapter, really. Um, first of all, like, like I said, if you look at um, verse 12 here, you know, historically, I always thought that this was referring to Satan, you know, Lucifer or the, uh, the, the morning star, son of the dawn. But this is in reference, guys, to the Assyrian Nimrod, um, the one who, who made the, uh, the Tower of Babel back in Genesis 10 and 11. And actually, this, uh, this verse is um, even kind of expounded upon in the book of Jasher. Um, Jasher expounds upon how, how Nimrod wanted to essentially build a tower so that he could breach the firmament of heaven because he knew that there was somehow a way to get up, you know, above the, the firmament of heaven so that he could war with God. He wanted to kill God, set up his own armies up there and be God of, you know, all of creation. And so, you know, Yahweh interjected, obviously we know that from Genesis 11, but so this is who this is in reference to. And he's, you know, he goes down to Sheol and everyone who, who sees him are excited over him. You know, they see him and, and, and they think to themselves, wow, even this mighty man, he was, even he has to come down to, to where we are, you know, the spirits of the dead. 
And so it's just, it's fascinating because this is, you know, this is just further um, talking about shield, you know, that's a concept shield where all men go, even, even Nimrod had to go to shield. And uh, as, as Sean, you know, did talk about in, in last week's episode there, we believe that um, that Nimrod is, is the Apollyon of revelation that he's the one that comes out of the bottomless pit. And um, so he's destined to come back again, guys. Uh, if you haven't watched that episode, I strongly suggest you do. Sean did an amazing job um, going over lots of scriptures and, and, you know, historical accounts that talk about Osiris and uh, Egypt and, and a lot of, you know, fascinating things there that have to do with, with the, uh, the end time antichrist, you know, the man of sin. All right, guys, I'm going to move on to uh, Ezekiel 31 here, which pretty much just parallels Isaiah 14. And we'll start with verse one. I think we're pretty much doing the whole the whole chapter here. It says, in the 11th year, or in the 11th year, in the third month, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and very high, and its tops was among the clouds. The waters made it grow, the deep made it high. With its rivers, it continually extended all around its planting place and sent out its channels to all the trees of the field. Therefore, its height was loftier than all the trees of the field, and its bows became many and its branches long because of many waters as it spread them out. All the birds of the heavens nested in its bows, and under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth, and all great nations lived under its shade. So it was beautiful in its greatness, and the length of its branches, for its roots extended to many waters. The cedars in God's garden could not match it. The cypresses could not compare with its bows, and the plain trees could not match its branches. No tree in God's garden could compare with it in its beauty. I made it beautiful with the multitude of its branches and all the trees of Eden, which were in the garden of God, were jealous of it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it is high in stature and has set its top among the clouds and its heart is haughty in its loftiness. Therefore, I will give it into the hand of a despot of the nations. He will thoroughly deal with it. According to its wickedness, I've driven it away. Alien tyrants of the nations have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys, its branches have fallen, and its bows have been broken in all the ravines of the land. And all the peoples of the earth have gone down from its shade and left it. On its ruin, all the birds of the heavens will dwell, and all the beasts of the field will be on its fallen branches, so that all the trees by the waters may not be exalted in their stature, nor set their top among the clouds, nor their well-watered mighty ones stand erect in their height. For they have all been given over to death, to the earth beneath, among the sons of men, with those who go down to the pit. Thus says the Lord God, on the day when it went down to Sheol, I caused lamentations. I closed the deep over it and held back its rivers, and its many waters were stopped up. And I made Lebanon mourn for it, and all the trees of the field wilted away on account of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I made it go down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the wall, sorry, and all the well-watered trees of Eden, the choicest and best of Lebanon, were comforted in the earth beneath. They also went down with it to Sheol, to those who were slain by the sword, and those who were in its strength lived under its shade among the nations. 
That is a mouthful, guys. But um, what are we what are we seeing there, Ken? Well, that's a yeah, that's a good question, Sean. Um, are we seeing possibly essentially Babylon since its inception all the way till when it gets dealt with at the coming of the day of the Lord? I I theorize that we're seeing the destruction because he's talking to present day Pharaoh of Egypt and telling them you aren't as powerful as this thing I destroyed. And then he goes into all these verses of explanation. I think he's talking about the Tower of Babel. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I thought based off of Isaiah 14 that it was, it was a parallel passage here, but yeah, glad because to, glad to see you 14. back, Sean. <laughs> hey, what? Glad to see you back on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that, guys. My power, uh, power cut out and I just had to take a minute to reboot. But um, so, yeah, the Isaiah 14 passage, you know, where it, it talks about him going down to the Sheol and then he's being basically, um, you know, it goes over his motivations that he had, that he was the man that supposedly was going to uh, set his throne above the stars. And so we read that that's in Jasher 9 tells us that's the motivation of, of Nimrod himself, whom I made a big case for last week that that was, you know, the, the Polyon, the beast, the Antichrist. And so we know that uh, Nimrod was king of the world at the time and supposedly the king of Babylon, the first king of Babylon. And that that's why this Ezekiel 31 passage is so fascinating to me because Ken, look at verse um, verse 14 that you read so that all the trees by the waters may not be exalted in their stature, nor set their top among the clouds. And, uh, and then the previous verse where it says uh, verse 12, alien tyrants of the nations have cut it down, left it on the mountains and the valleys. Its branches have fallen. Its bows have been broken in the ravines of the land. All the peoples of the earth have gone down from its shade and left it. And <laughs> And so I just think that that's fascinating to me. This is this is one of the the most descriptive passages about the Tower of Babel that we have. Yeah, I know. And Jasher is fascinating. It gives us extra detail about how it was split essentially into three parts, right? Yeah. And one part was swallowed by the earth, and that's, right. that's what we see here, where it says it went down to Sheol, down to the pit, and the trees of Lebanon, and um, went down with it and were comforted. Or excuse me, the well-watered trees of Eden, the choicest and best of Lebanon. This is verse 16. Were comforted in the earth beneath. That would have been all the trees growing inside the massive city. Now, if you guys haven't done any research on the Tower of Babel, this thing was no joke. This thing was not. I mean, we're talking like super massive architecture that we've never even come close to to build anything big that big today. And so, um, uh, it would have basically its own contained city inside. And, and you could have waterways and <laughs> trees and gardens. And um, so I think it's fascinating that you have these talking about the trees going down in it. And also um, it's talking about in verse, verse 15. It says, this is Lord God on the day when it went down to Sheol. So on the day when it went down to Sheol, I caused lamentations. I closed the deep over it and held back its rivers. Its many waters were stopped up and made Lebanon mourn for it. All the trees of the field wilted on account of it. And I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I made it go down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. So just imagine, Ken, a massive building falling. Wow. Sean, I, I must say that, um, yeah, I, I wasn't seeing it the way you just described it. And now I totally see that. I didn't see that parallel with the, the count in Jasher because it does say that in Jasher. You're right. Um, you know, the one third of it, the lower, the base of it, I believe. Yeah, was, went down to show. Yeah, you're right. I didn't. I didn't see that with the first time I read this. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> mean, something it, every day, guys. <laughs> I my bad. I thought we had already talked about this in the past, but I guess I. I don't know. I. But yeah, this is the way. Like uh, when I was doing my Tower of Babel research, that's where I came across this verse, and I was just baffled because I was like, "Look, nations are quaking at the sound of its fall." 
So yeah, if this building is as big as as they say as Jubilee says it is, then absolutely the surrounding nations are going to suffer an earthquake the day that this thing toppled. Yeah, they, I think I, I worked out the uh, the cubits, the ancient cubits or whatever that they they gave the size to, and it, it's well over the size of Mount Everest. Yes, yes, it's massive. And yeah, and they were they weren't even close to done yet. You know, they no. had the intentions of actually getting to the firmament. <laughs> that's right, and that's, and that's why, why Yahweh you... had to do something, right? Yeah, and that's why you'd have to build a base that big so that you can have a support to get all the way up to the top. You know, your your base has to be big enough. You know, so. And yeah, Yahweh took them seriously because he had to stop them. I mean, he he thought they were going to do it. And uh, and this is where I would allude that they were master builders back then. They had more advanced building techniques than possibly we even do today. I mean, unless that we just have people out there intentionally not building mega structures like that. But you know, did you know that recently Japan talked about they wanted to build um, a massive, I want to say it's like the shape of a pyramid from a distance. But when you get up close, it's actually got smoothed off rounded off edges it almost looks like a dreidel turned upside down like a spinning top oh, okay you know what i mean but just the top portion of the spinning top and that would have been this massive building that was going to be as tall as mount fuji which was going to be two miles tall and this was wow. a construction project that uh, just outside of tokyo that they wanted to try to build it ended up getting scraps and now they're just building more high rises but because it would have been a mega structure you know with a huge base um that would have been <laughs> half a mile wide. Yeah, look at the plans for for Neom, right? I mean, yeah. they're they're boasting that they're gonna Dubai is gonna just pale in in comparison. It's just it's gonna be nothing. Yeah, and we don't know the the actual single buildings and how tall they're gonna be. They say they're gonna build taller than the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, but I don't know. I haven't seen any plans. The city itself is gonna encompass a sprawl bigger than you know bigger than Dubai and bigger than New York City and bigger. It's gonna be massive, but as far as the actual architectural buildings put inside that mega city, I'm not sure how big they're going to be, but they boast that they're going to be much bigger than the Burj Khalifa, right? Which is like 100 and what, 168 stories or something like that. Something ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Half a mile tall, basically. And so, like I was saying, Japan wanted to build something two miles tall, but then they realized, no, let's not do it. It may cost too much money. But Jubilees tells us that the Tower of Babel took, they were building it for 41 to 42 years. And Jasher claims that there was 400,000 men helping with the construction project. So if we taking those two descriptions seriously, you can accomplish a lot in 42 years with 400,000 men, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And they, so, they, they didn't have the type of labor laws that uh, we may have right. today. I mean, if someone died, they just, they didn't right. care, you know? <laughs> well, that's, isn't that what, uh, is it, is it Jasher that talks it, like it that? Says if they dropped a brick, they, they mourned more over the brick than they did if someone fell off. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So Sean, of course, they're already practicing occult practices anyway, and their hearts are hardened and lack lacking love anyway. So that would make sense with that behavior. But that's right. Yeah. Uh, Before we moved on, Sean, to the third segment here, um, I had something just out of the prayer of Manasseh. I was going to I was going to read real quick, if you don't mind, unless you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, man. So, guys, the prayer of Manasseh, it's an interesting little book. I don't know why it's not in our our modern canon, but um Actually, Second Baruch chapter sixty-four talks about Manasseh in, in ways that I haven't seen in like Second Chronicles or Kings, where it talks about his, his you know, his death and uh, and it isn't described in any type of detail, except for in Second Baruch here, where it talks about that he essentially was put inside like a brazen um, a brazen horse or something like that, and then it was melted, that and that served as a sign 
um, apparently Yahweh just used that as a sign, according to Second Baruch, that he, you know, <laughs> that he he gives life to those he wants and he takes life from those he wants. And uh, it's fascinating because one of the things that Manasseh set up was an image with five faces. And it, I think it talks about four of them look to the four winds and the fifth on the summit of the image as an adversary of the zeal of the mighty one. So he, whatever Manasseh did, I mean, he did a, a pile of atro like atrocities, but um, he made the, he made an image that really got Yahweh upset. And just before he died, he, there was a prayer. And actually that prayer is alluded to in the same book. Second, second book where it talks about him saying a prayer, but in this prayer, in the prayer of Manasseh, it says in verse 13 of chapter one, there's only one chapter. It says, I earnestly beseech thee, forgive me, O Yahweh, forgive me. Do not destroy me with my transgressions. Do not be angry with me forever. Lay up evil for me. Do not condemn me to the depths of the earth. So that's, uh, it just goes in, in line with what we're talking about here about, you know, mighty kings, they go to Sheol as well. They go to the depths of the earth. And Manasseh was one of those. Yeah. And that's, I mean, we read about that in Isaiah 14, like you just read. That's right. So, and that's where the reason why he would have that disposition, in, in my opinion, Ken, is because from Abraham's promise in Genesis 17 was to he and his descendants to live in the land forever. That was an eternal promise. And that that inherently includes the resurrection. So, guys, Abraham lived and died. Isaac lived and died. Jacob lived and died. Yet the same covenant in Deuteronomy 30, verse 20 is being in Exodus 20, verse 4. The same covenant is being offered to all of Israel. The covenant of the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So how is it that they're getting the same promise to inherit the same land of promise and to live there forever, which was the covenant given. They had the same covenant given to them. And the covenant was that they would get to live there forever. It inherently included the understanding that there had to be a resurrection to come, which is what Hebrews 11 even tells us about, right? And Abraham offering Isaac. He said he knew that he was the guy of the resurrection. So he said, you know, it's they already had this idea because they realized Death is appointed to man. You have to die at some point, just like you read in that previous passage in Ezra, I believe, or something. Um, but second but all men, yeah, second Baruch, all men have to die. And so they already knew that. They got it. But they, the hope and the faith that they had with the covenant with Yahweh was that they would be resurrected. And there was an appointed time for that, as Enoch details in other places. So this right. is why Manasseh would even pray something like that and say, don't leave me or condemn me to the, to the pit of the earth or to the depths of the earth. Yeah. And unfortunately for him, uh, it, it, according to second Baruch, Yahweh said too bad, too late. Right. Like this yeah. prayer is falling on deaf ears. Yeah. And because, you know, the only time those guys are brought out of the depth of the earth, since they missed the first resurrection is for judgment to be thrown in the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20 That's right. at the end of the millennium. And that's why, they don't want to be there. They want everyone wants to make the first resurrection, guys. You want to make the first resurrection because don't don't take the chance that you'll be in that sliver of people that survive the day of the Lord and have a and have an opportunity after he returns. I would, you know, give your heart to God, walk in his ways. That's right. <laughs> That's my heartfelt cry for everyone watching. <laughs> All right, brother. Um, what's what's next here? We, we got, got you did that. Revelation. Oh, do you want to jump into segment three with Revelation, Sean? Yeah, yeah, let's jump into Revelation real quick. And then um, it's going to be in chapter 6 for those following along. In Revelation 6, we have this famous passage about the souls under the altar. And a lot of people really struggle with this passage. You know, they're like, what does this mean? What's going on? And this is where a lot of people would have this, um, a very common theology taught in mainstream churches that they'll say, well, see, you know, when you die, you go to heaven. 
and that and this altar's in heaven, and that's what they're looking at. And that's where we would say this altar's in Sheol. It's not really, but the altar itself is the earth, and that's where it's the land of the earth, and that's why all the um in the old testament before the tabernacle ordinances were put in Leviticus and Exodus, all the priests were doing ordinances on stones that were unhewn, right? So it was the earth itself. And the blood of the earth is, you know, holds the cry of Abel, so to speak. But Yeshua's blood speaks of a better testimony, you know, these famous passages. And the reason why I'm bringing this up, Ken, is because I want to address, I'm, I'm sure there's people watching right now that are probably knee-jerking a little bit, thinking, wait a minute, guys, Paul, you know, Paul, <laughs> Paul says, you know, to be absent in the body is present with the Lord. Well, guys, <laughs> you, we can't take one little statement and ignore, you know, an entire wealth uh, and a library of books that tell us a different description of how we wait for our resurrection, yeah. right? We, we, we've we got uh, Isaiah 26, 19, talking about the earth giving birth to departed spirits. Isaiah 60, verse 8, how they're flying like doves, their lattices going to the new Jerusalem at the beginning of the day, the Lord be protected. Um, you know, the passages we just read in Enoch as well. Um, David talks about how in Psalm 49, he talks about how his soul will be ransomed from Sheol, okay? Yeah. So there is no no passage in the New Testament that says any of that structure, any of that initial reasoning and that initial context of Sheol and how it's a receptacle for the departed spirits of mankind. There's no place in the New Testament that says that changed. And in That's fact, right. And if, it, if it appears that it, there's something different, then you're likely just not understanding it correctly within its frame of context, right? Because we don't we don't make doctrine off of you know little cherry picked verses, right? We we make doctrine off of the foundation of a plethora of verses, and then if one seems to disagree or you know looks a little different, then we analyze that under you know the scriptural microscope, and we we come to the conclusion that it either goes with the foundation or it's something completely different. Right, and here's and here's why I'm I'm what I'm actually getting to here is that. People want to say, okay, well, Paul said um, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. Now, not only is I, would I say that that's taken out of context, and I don't really think this show is not devoted to breaking down the context of that chapter itself. So let's just take that verse at face value, how people misunderstand it, and let's run with that. And I've got a rebuttal for that, okay? So I'm going to screen share and show you guys in uh, Psalm 139 how even if we took that at face value, it's already addressed. And that's uh, because it's not a coincidence that. Sheol is being made as a receptacle for the righteous. And what did Jesus tell us in Luke 16? That when Lazarus died, the angels came and took him to Hades. <laughs> right? They took him to this Abraham's bosom. Okay? So they didn't take him to heaven. They didn't take him there. So this, so even Jesus himself is talking about the language and the directional terms of Sheol being, you know, this place, the receptacle of departed spirits. So if we look here in Psalm 139. I'll just start reading here um, in verse 7 and 8. Okay, guys, it says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. So right there, even the psalmist David is, is making his, uh, his psalm explaining that, look, guys, the spirit of the Lord is with us as righteous people in Sheol. And it's not going to be, you know, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We're not, you know, I would personally say that when Yeshua descended in three days, he was in the heart of the earth, that they all saw him. And it was, it was a wonderful testimony, you know, and they saw him leave. So he go get resurrected, you know, and they get this little moment of faith, which is why they're later in Revelations crying out, 
hey, when are you going to avenge our blood? You right? were going to read that. Yeah, you're almost, you're read almost there to read that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the idea is that um, they're not talking to God. They're talking to Yeshua. That's right. <laughs> because they can, because they, in my opinion, they already saw him. He came and went and uh, he was raised. And so therefore they, you know, now it makes right. sense that they're, they realize he's fulfilled the role. He has the power now. And they're just waiting for him to take part in the day of the Lord. So verse nine, Sean, guys. Sean, when I think of that, before you get to that, when I think of that, I think um, I just picture Yeshua when he's there for three days. Um, he goes up to Samuel and just gives him a little jostle. Hey, Samuel, <laughs> wake up. And he wakes up. He's like, not again. Oh, it's you, Yeshua. Yeshua, you can wake me up. That's fine, right? Yeah. Whereas Saul, this guy wakes me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's let the right person rouse you. That's and right. uh, <laughs> But yes, imagine, you know, Oh man, imagine like, that's why I love Psalm 1610. David says, you know, you'll not leave my soul in Sheol and your Holy one will not see decay. And so I imagine did David skirt push through the crowd and be like, there's the Holy one, man. There's the guy I was writing about in all these Psalms, you know what I mean? And yeah. there's a guy Enoch was talking about how he saw before the creation of the world, you know? And I just imagine, cause I believe they all knew about Enoch. And so I can only imagine the elation that would have happened as they saw him show up because they realized the Messiah came. He's now been obedient. He's he's gained the victory. He's you know so he can be resurrected and placed in his eternal Melchizedek role as prophesied by David. You know what I'm saying? And you're just yeah. like, ah oh, man, I don't know how much conversation they can have down there. Clearly, they can cry out enough to to complain. That's right. <laughs> but you know, I don't know how much they can do. So let's read real quick about some of their complaining. So it looks in a, a Revelation six. Actually, I'm gonna. I'm going to screen share real quick so that people can follow along. And Revelation 6, if you're following along in your Bibles, um, we are going to be reading right here in verses 9 through 11. It says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So two things I want to point out. And the third thing you're actually going to read from Enoch about. So you'll clear up that. And that's about the number of to be completed. But the two things I wanted to point out real quick is this idea here that it says they were given white robes in verse 11. And they told they should rest a little while longer. So... Clearly, this idea of resting in Sheol is not just straight the same type of sleep that you and I experience where we're laying motionless and our brain's active, but our bodies are not. So, That's right. Otherwise, they wouldn't know. be able to comprehend what they were just told, right? Just exactly. wait a little longer. Here's your white robes. Right? That's right. If there's sleep, then I mean, there's no point in, in having that discussion. <laughs> yeah, there's a very conscious back and forth happening. And who's given them their white robes? You know, that's a good question. Uh, you, you probably well, have the answer, but I would say well, probably I mean, the angel who can get there. Exactly. Right, what did Jesus tell us in Luke 16? The angels escorted him there. So, guys, even in Sheol, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, there's angels there. I mean, they're like overseers, I imagine. It's not just, you know, like it's not just a, a free-for-all down there. So, I'm, I'm guaranteeing the the, or, the structure and order and of the civility, if you will, um, just to maintain the babysitting, let's just use the generic word, the yeah. babysitting of the Lord is is there and it's his angels doing their job. Yeah, no, for sure, Sean. I and mean, you just read in Jubilee chapter two, right? That there's ministering spirits over, you know, even the abysses. So 
there are angels there. We know for sure Raphael is one of the angels in charge of that place. And I think you guys can refer to Enoch chapter 20, where it talks about some of these angels and what they watch over, right? What they're responsible for. And um, yeah, one of them is over paradise. I think Gabriel's over paradise and Raphael's over, you know. Those who rise. Wasn't that it in Enoch 20? So this would make sense because... You know, Raphael's giving him the tour of Sheol. And like I joked about in our Honor of King show when we did our Sheol episode, you know, it's it's it feels like it's, you know, take Enoch to work day, you know, and these these angels are kind of like <laughs> they're escorting to the different facets that they're responsible over to show them what they do, you know. And so that's Raphael took him to Sheol to his job and showed him what's up, you know. And that's to me, that's just a hilarious. But um, so we got these yeah. souls under the altar, they're crying out, they're given white robes, which is their resurrection robes. So are these literal physical robes? See what I'm saying? Like, so, because when they're rebirthed into the new body that we're going to have, according to Psalm, excuse me, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, other places, Isaiah 26, 19, when we're raised from the earth as spiritual beings and no longer earthy beings, no longer descendants of, of the earth like Adam, but we're raised in as a, with this new type of body called a spiritual body. Clearly, you can still have clothes of some sort, just like Yeshua was clothed. At his post, well, yeah, Sean. I think that they're they're. It kind of plays off of the um the invisible cloak that you would see in movies, right? So yeah. where Yeshua, he was able to manifest in different forms and fashions and disappear in front of people. It's almost like a cloak of dis- like invincibility or invisibility, yeah. right? It's like <laughs> the material that his clothes were made out of was a different or higher material than the than the kind that we can make on the earth from regular cotton and linen and silk. Yeah, they so, they are said to be linen, but yeah. I mean, but if it's if it's coming, if it's being, if that cloak or excuse me, that uh, robe of righteousness is being constructed above the firmament in a different realm, you right. know, the spiritual realm, where we have the date palms, yes, the, the, that's right, than the date palms on this earth, right? Yeah. So, like, clearly, everything up there is different, pure, holy, has a different atmosphere to it, a different physics, if you will, um, and and the angels exemplify this, and Yeshua exemplified this after his resurrection showing himself to his disciples. Um, That's right. So do you want to pick up now, yes. guys, we read in, in Revelation six and it talked about these guys, these souls under the altar that were crying out saying that when are you going to avenge our blood? And they said here, rest a little while longer. Here's your resurrection robes. Uh, it's not here yet. The day of the Lord's not here yet. And therefore the number of those who were to be killed as you have been, have not been completed yet. And we're going to read about that number right here in Enoch. That's right. These are two epic chapters guys that parallel perfectly um chapter 47 and in those days shall have ascended the prayer of the righteous and the blood of the righteous from the earth before the lord of spirits in those days the holy ones who dwell above in the heavens shall unite with one voice and supplicate and pray and praise and give thanks and bless the name of the lord of spirits on behalf of the blood of the righteous which has been shed and that the prayer of the righteous may not be in vain before the lord of spirits that judgment may be done unto them that they may not have to suffer forever in those days I saw the head of days when he seated himself upon the throne of his glory and the books of the living were opened before him and all his host, which is in heaven above and his counselors stood before him and the hearts of the holy were filled with joy because the number of the righteous had been offered and the prayer of the righteous had been heard and the blood of the righteous been required before the Lord of spirits in chapter 48. And in that place I saw, do you want to read chapter 48, Sean? Um, it's up to you, man. I mean, I, that definitely covered a lot of what we just talked about, but yeah, that's, that's, I figured that, uh, I should at least throw in 47 there. I can through 48 real quick. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're doing good. Sure. 
Hopefully we're not going over too long, guys. Sorry about this. It's just a good, it's a good chapter here. And in that place, I saw the fountain of righteousness, which was inexhaustible. And around it were many fountains of wisdom and all the thirsty drank of them and were filled with wisdom and their dwellings were with the righteous and holy and elect. And at that hour, the son of man was named in the presence of the Lord of spirits and his name before the head of days. Yeah, before the sun and the signs were created, before the stars of the heaven were made, his name was named before the Lord of spirits. He shall be a staff to the righteous whereon to stay themselves and not fall. And he shall be the light of the Gentiles and the hope of those who are troubled of heart. And all who dwell on earth shall fall down and worship before him and will praise and bless and celebrate with song the Lord of spirits. And for this reason hath he been chosen and hidden before him, before the creation of the world and forevermore. And the wisdom of the Lord of spirits hath revealed him to the holy and righteous, for he hath preserved the lot of the righteous, because they have hated and despised this world of unrighteousness and have hated all its works and ways in the name of the Lord of spirits. For in his name they are saved, and according to his good pleasure hath it been in regard to their life. In these days, downcast and countenance shall the kings of the earth have become, and the strong who possess the land because of the works of their hands. For on the day of their anguish and affliction they shall not be able to save themselves, and I will give them over into the hands of my elect, as straw in the fire, so they shall burn before the face of the holy, as lead in the water shall they sink before the face of the righteous, and no trace of them shall any more be found. And on the day of their affliction, there shall be rest on the earth, and before them shall fall and not rise again. And there shall be none to take them with his hands and raise them, for they have denied the Lord of spirits and his anointed. The name of the Lord of spirits be blessed. Perfectly lines up with Enoch 22 previously, that they're not, the unrighteous are not raised on the day of affliction, which we're talking about the day of the Lord. And um, so that's, uh, it's amazing. And I love the fact that it says that in his name, they're saved after it talks about the son, the, you know, the son of man. Um, what I wanted to point out real quick is I'm going to screen share this. I highlighted verse seven here. It says the wisdom of the Lord of spirits has revealed him to the holy and righteous for he has preserved the lot of the righteous. And that's, that's wild because you've got, you remember what Baruch talks about when Baruch's about to die and God's telling him, you know, don't worry, you'll be preserved. That's right. You know, it mentions it multiple times in Baruch. How he's, is it, is Ezra's or Baruch? Am I getting this backwards? Um, we're, Isn't talking Baruch about Baruch. we're talking about Baruch. Yep. Yeah. Apocalypse of Baruch, uh, chapter 49, where he talks about he's going to die, but God's trying to assure him that he will be preserved, meaning you, you know, you're going to be in the good side of Sheol, uh, and therefore you can inspect the resurrection, you know, because right. you've been a righteous, faithful man. So basically, before Baruch even dies, you, you know, God, through his uh, messenger angel, tells him which side of Sheol he's going to go to, and that he's going to be saved. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, it's just, I, that's amazing to me. I wish he'd come tell me. It's so, wild, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Sean, I'm just going to quickly read Second Ezra's. Um, this is one verse out of Second Ezra's chapter 4, where it just perfectly parallels Revelation 6 and these uh, Enoch chapter 47, 48 passages. Yeah, perfect, so verse, man. Go ahead. Yeah, verse 35, it says, Did not the souls of the righteous in their chambers ask about these matters, saying, How long are we to remain here? And when will come the harvest of our reward? I like the word harvest there, Sean, because Yeshua uses that a lot in the Gospels, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Matthew 13, he talks about the reaper angels that go out to gather the harvest of the wheat. You know, um, the tares are bound together to be, you know, in bundles to be burned. That's a reference to the kings, the armies of the world that come together, the Valley of Armageddon for the day, you know, the, the Battle of Armageddon. They'll be destroyed. But the wheat, the reaper angels are sent out to gather the wheat, you know, and that's, that's right. I love it. 
I, I, that's a great verse, man. It's a great passage. It's amazing. But yeah, guys, it, it, these are chambers that the yeah. souls of the righteous go to and unrighteous. They have their, their side as well. So you can't get around it. Can't, yeah, it's it's in the prophets everywhere. I mean, it's it's clear. It's just never been taught to us. That's the thing. Like we have these really, really badly, poorly explained concepts from mainstream church that we've grown up with most of our life. At least I have here in the United States. And no one ever mentions Sheol. No one ever talks about the purpose of Sheol. Uh, mainly, I'll be honest with you, mainly because most churches teach that the Old Testament is just good for Sunday school stories. It's not really relevant to us. And that they just get most of the theology and doctrine from the New Testament. And unfortunately, it causes them to take stuff out of context. So that's where, you know, they would take passages like we just read from Revelation 6. And they would just say, oh, it's metaphoric. It must mean something else. Or they're in heaven crying out, you know. And you're like, well, if you're already in heaven, man, you don't need to be resurrected. You're good. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I never understood that. Yeah, I didn't yeah it never it doesn't make sense in any regard. And the prophets agree. So the next part of the segment, unless there's anything further you want to comment on that segment. I was going to say in all fairness, I, I had heard in um, church when I was younger that in the Old Testament, when people died, they did go to, you know, Sheol, right? Or whatever. But in the New Testament, when Yeshua came and he died on the cross and he resurrected, from that point onward, everyone started to ascend into heaven when they died or go to hell. So yeah, you had that weird kind of teaching thrown into the mix too. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what I was talking about earlier in the show when I said, I know people try to say that, you know, that people are now in heaven after the resurrection, but that's where I was saying there's nothing in there that states a change of events or that suddenly Sheol has no purpose. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's nothing in there. In fact, Yeshua himself continued to teach the doctrine of Sheol and the purpose of Sheol through his parable. Otherwise, we would have to conclude that in the Luke 16 parable that he gave us a false or bad doctrinal setting for his parable to teach truth to us. And I've even heard, Ken, it breaks my heart because I've even heard some people say that, oh, this this whole idea of the underworld and Hades and Sheol, you know, that it, where departed spirits go to await this resurrection, that it's that's Greek mythology. And that's not, you know, that's not in the Bible. And I would give them scriptures and they just ignore that. I tell them, well, what about Jesus? Jesus is using this specific setting for a parable to teach us a truth. And they're like, oh, well, he was just, you know, borrowing from what they understood at the time of their day. And I'm like, guys, and of course, these are people that haven't read Enoch or they reject Enoch because they don't want, they don't like it for some reason, or they just don't take the time to read it, in my opinion. Yeah, Sean. And, yeah. What's Sorry, I was just going to interject real quick. We got someone in the comments, just scanning the comments. Um, I agree with what you're saying, man, for sure. But uh, someone in the comments here is asking, so then what does he led captivity, captivity captive mean? You know, that, that passage, oh. I think it's in Psalms. Yes, abs you, you absolutely. Wanna, you want to answer that one? Yeah, because everyone in Sheol is metaphorically spoken of as cap being captive. That's why in Psalm 49, that's why David says, he will not abandon my soul to Sheol, but he will ransom me. That's I'll right. go there. I'll go there real quick so we can read that just, but yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, we are, he is the first fruits of the first resurrection. He's our King. Yeshua is firstborn among the dead. Um, he is the head of the church. So he is our leader in a, in a generic term. I can say it like that. That's and right. therefore he is the one who sets the captives free. Isaiah 60, right. Uh, or is Isaiah 60? Literally, right? Yeah. Literally sets us free, free on the day of the Lord when we resurrect guys. Yes. 
because it's the lot of man because of what Adam did to die and go to this place, Shul. And that's why we read in Jubilees 2, this place was created at the very beginning because God knew what was going to happen. <laughs> he knew man was going to mess up and that man was going to have a lot of babies and that all those babies were going to live and die and have to go somewhere. And their life was going to be weighed upon their deeds and upon yeah. the faith they had in God and, and played out through their deeds. And so, therefore, he had to have a place for them to be kept to either await the resurrection that he was going to provide through the Son of Man, through his through his Son that he sent, uh, his only begotten Son, or to, if they rejected uh, God in general, his authority, his Torah, his priesthood, his his future high priest with Yeshua, um, or his you know the Son of Man that was prophesied through all the prophets. If they rejected all that, then they were going to be you know, have to be eventually extinguished in a lake of fire, um, right. which is why they hang out in Sheol and watch the first resurrection take place. And they don't get to take part in it. But real quick in Psalm uh, verse, Psalm chapter 49, uh, let me go and run to it real quick. I'm almost there. It's a good question, guys. Really good question for sure. It I mean, is, it is good because everyone in Sheol is spoken of as being captive. Yeah. And therefore he sets the captives free. He leads captivity captive. And it's a very uh, wonderful turn of a phrase, to be honest with you. As, as someone that loves to write, I always, I always love phrases like that, you know, where you're like using the same word back to back, and but you change the meaning of it, you know, because the way you use it. So, yeah, Sean, uh, I, I would say that, um, you know, because Sheol is referred to as a place of captivity, we know that at the end of the storyline, right, at the very end, right, at the end of yeah. the thousand year millennial reign, that, that that place of captivity, I would say, um, gets taken into its own captivity and extinguished. That's right. Yeah. He brings death and Hades before him because there's everyone that's going to be resurrected after the second resurrection has been. And therefore every, all the loose ends have to be tied up and all the judgment has to go towards the unrighteous. That's right. So that's, that's and why there's, even, there's no point in having a place at the end of the millennial reign for a, a you know, a compartment where people, you know, there, cause there's going to be no more death at that juncture. So, yeah. He just gets he makes more room for for things, I guess, and just well, and this, shop a bit. <laughs> this falls into understanding the context of how the first resurrection is described. And this is what Enoch chapter five, verses six through nine explains to us is that at the first resurrection, you're given a heart circumcised by God. This is also the promise in Deuteronomy 30, verse six, that you're given a heart circumcised by God with this new spiritual body that's incorruptible and your behavior, your mind, your heart will always follow Torah. His instructions for living what he calls holy and righteous and you will never make a mistake again you cannot sin this is the proleptic phrase that john the apostle talks about in first john 3 where he says those born of god cannot sin and that's an allusion to the first resurrection to come because if we can't sin we cannot die and that's simple as that guys simple concept you sin you die you don't sin you, you have eternal life and he makes it for us so that we cannot sin at the resurrection therefore after the second resurrection and everyone has been given this circumcised heart, there's no need for Sheol anymore. Story, the story is done. There's no need for people won't be transgressing anymore after that. Every, it'll be a place of righteousness, holiness, and eternal life. And so um, it's going to be, it's a great thing real quick. Psalm 49 guys, I'm going to screen share so that uh, they can read along with me. If they're still watching and listening, um, if they haven't been, haven't gotten upset, so it's, uh, verse 14 and 15, as sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. 
Um, and there's the previous verses talk about how men, it is the, the way of man to perish, you know, to die. And so, um, but for the righteous, God will redeem our seal, our soul from Sheol. And that's just a beautiful promise, guys. He, he's not going to leave us down there. You know, we're captive down there, but he's going to set us free. That's right. Amen. So real quick, uh, do we want to cover Jonah 2 real quick? Because this is a this is really important. This is a big one. Yeah, sure, man. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'll, I'll start here in Jonah 2. Um, and uh, that way people can. I love this book. This is yeah. I hate saying it's one of my favorites because the you know the Bible is vastly becoming just as a whole my favorite. But um, the book of Jonah it's so short, but there's so much compacted into it, and then it's uh, it really it's is really tricky if you don't understand Sheol, right, Sean? What yeah. what's going on in Jonah chapter two here? Yeah, and we're gonna go over Jesus's words about Jonah and how understanding Sheol makes sense of both. Okay. So Jonah chapter two verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said. I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and bellows passed over me. So I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah on the dry land. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what did we just read? <laughs> That's um so guys, um I think this is is fascinating because what uh, my favorite part i think that i i think always gets kind of looked over is uh not not just the fact that he says you know this prayer came from the stomach of the fish and so people immediately think he's alive in the fish is that right that's right yeah i mean right at the end of chapter one we're told that he's thrown overboard right and then yeah. he sinks and then immediately in chapter two here we get the statement that um or sorry, right at the end of chapter one, it says that a fish came and swallowed him up. Right. And right. so, yeah, chapter two starts with he's, he prayed to the Lord as God from the stomach of the fish. So people yeah. think he's literally on his knees inside of the bowels of a fish praying in the darkness and in, in a ton of amount of methane that he could never breathe in. And they think <laughs> they think that he's alive during this moment. Yeah. And that's and why I, says, I used to think this, too. I, so, I used you know, to think so this, too. Yeah, my full this was taught to us as being a miracle, right? This, in fact, this part here, and what I would say, this misconception of this part is taught as the miracle of the story, but it's not. Yeah. That's the crazy part. The miracle of the story is, is we're about to read. It's his resurrection. It goes much deep, literally. Yeah. 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 And that's why he says in verse two, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol and you heard my voice. Yeah. What I think is fascinating here in verse four, Ken, where he says, so I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Yeah. And so even though he's disobeying, and I mean, I've heard the wildest sermons about Jonah, right? So even though he's disobeying and he's not fulfilling what God asked him to go do, people think, well, see, he's in rebellion. He's backslidden. This is a metaphor for your life. And, you know, God miraculously saved him with the fish, keeping him alive in the fish. But had he not, he would have died and went to hell because he was running from God. You know what I'm saying? And I'm yeah. like, in his own prayer, and his own words, he's confident 
that even though he's removed from his sight because he's where in Sheol, that he's still going to see his holy temple again one day. He's speaking about, he's expecting to be resurrected. Yeah, it implies the resurrection. That's right. It yeah. Absolutely. It doesn't imply that he thinks he's going you know, to a place of burning torment or that he was in some great rebellion towards God. Yeah. Guys, this is a guy who was a prophet. God said, hey, I would like for you to go speak to Babylon or to you know Assyria. And he's like, no, I don't want to. That doesn't that doesn't mean he's excluded from salvation for eternity. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it's like a great example is we did our tour portions a few weeks ago. Uh, my wife and I do a show called Kingdom Portions, and uh, we read about the part in Deuteronomy where it talks. I think it's chapter like 24. Talks about how the soldiers before they went to battle, that the priest would go out to the battle lines basically, and he would make an announcement. Right. And he would say, you know, if you if you just bought a house, if you just planted a vineyard, if you just got engaged. You're welcome to leave if you want, and you can go back and enjoy those things. And then he makes a final proclamation. The priest says to all the people, all the soldiers about to fight, if you're scared, go home. And, and so here, you know, were, are they in some grand rebellion? No. The Lord told them, hey, I want you to honest. go. Yeah. yeah, they're being honest. But what I'm saying is the Lord told them, I want you to go out and fight XYZ clan, right? The the nearest Amorite, Canaanite, whomever, whomever they're going to fight, the Lord told them. Remember, they would go to the... The Umen and Thummin, I can't even say that word. The Thummim and the Urimi, I can't even say it. They would go to the two stones the priest had, right? And they would try to figure out, you know, to they would consult um, the breastplate, as far as I can understand, and they would try to get a word from the Lord, should they go fight? The guy would say, yes, go fight. But yet when they got to the battle line, God would say, if you don't want to fight, go home, right? So these are guys, it's their job. They're in the army. It's their job to fight. And God's not chastising him he's he doesn't make you do anything this is the part that always bugged me about jonas because they'll be like oh well he you know it was it was go to nineveh or die that was yeah. the choice that jonah was given and he tried to rebel and he got killed and i'm like actually the men threw him the superstitious men who worshiped other gods they threw him overboard jonah just didn't jump willingly off the boat and say oh i'm gonna stop this storm because i'm gonna jump off the boat and god didn't miraculously send an angel to shove him off the boat you know what I'm saying? It was the superstitious men that said, you know, who's what's going on here? This is a storm that's from the gods or whatever. And so therefore, Jonah was like, well, I am kind of, you know, running from what God asked me to do. So they just immediately equated. Well, then this storm must be because of you. And they threw him overboard. You know what I'm saying? It, so I just it baffles me that that we have this doctrine thrown at us that, you know, it was Nineveh or death, Jonah. You know, it's like the ultimate, you know, Nineveh or bust. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I want to I want a T-shirt that has a whale and it says Nineveh or bust. But um, but basically, Ken, what I'm trying to get at here is we got this prayer happening. It says that he's praying from the stomach of the fish. But from everything I can tell, he's thrown in the Mediterranean. He literally goes to the bottom of the Mediterranean because he drowns and he's dead. And the he's describing it through his prayer, actually, Sean. Yeah. yeah right. He's, and that's what's interesting is right here in chapter two, where the very first sentence, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, and then if you pay attention to everything after that, that point where he, it says, he said everything, pay close attention to the tenses. It, it, it's he's recounting his experience in Sheol. So he was just in Sheol. Yeah. <laughs> and he was resurrected back into his body has this prayer which he starts off in chapter two and then he spat out right at the end so it's it's fascinating when you when you read it you know the way it's, yeah. it's meant to be read so that's why if you didn't understand sheol you wouldn't have a clue what's happening in this chapter and you come up with this stuff like i just explained 
where you think that, you know, oh, that he was alive for three days in this belly of a fish, you know, with a Zippo or something down there. I don't know what's, I don't know what they expect, <laughs> but, um, yeah. and yes, God can keep, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego alive in the flame, you know, in the fire. But actually the, the prayer Azariah, another extra biblical book mentions that the angel of the Lord came in with a, a wet whistling wind, a wet wind to give them kind of like a, a bubble around them to protect them from the fire. So even yeah. in that sense, there's there's yeah. a little more to the story, you know? Yeah, exactly. But what I'm saying is there's all this context. And this is why I'm pairing this up with Matthew 12, because Jesus mentions Jonah and he only mentions him one time as far as I can find out. Right. Yeah. So everything Jesus mentions is important. OK, if Jesus is teaching on it and specifically given a reference to it, then it's important that we understand the reference so we can understand what Jesus is saying. So do you want to read that part? Yeah, absolutely, guys. OK, Matthew 12. Starting in verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last day of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will be also with this evil generation. Very cryptic, Sean. Oh, I think you're muted there again, buddy. I see your lips moving. What did Jesus say to, I mean, what sign did the Pharisees actually see from Jesus? Well, they would have had to have seen him resurrect. Is that correct? Right. I mean, they, what other signs besides, I mean, he healed people left and right. He walked on water, but the Pharisees may not have saw that, but he healed people left and right, but he doesn't actually call that a sign, does he? That's right. So he actually says, and we don't have any, you know, Jonah, we don't really get teachings from Jonah to compare the teachings of Yeshua to Jonah to say that was the sign. We don't get any healings from Jonah to compare that. You know, the only thing we get is that he came in and he says, repent, and then people actually did. But it, are we comparing the preaching methods of repentance between Yeshua and Jonah? Is that the sign? Is that called a sign? Well, what, what I was always taught in church is that the sign basically is that Jonah was in the belly of the, you know, the fish for three days, three nights. Right. And Saya was in the tomb for three days and three nights. It's basically just the number that was the right. sign. And that isn't just not, it's not the truth. It goes much deeper than that. Yeah, because um, basically you've got, you know, Jesus is, uh, he's trying to give them a big hint, basically, because if you, you know, and this is why I'm, I always go back to um, John chapter three, where he's having that conversation with Nicodemus and he's talking about the first resurrection, but Nicodemus isn't catching on. And so then verse eight, or I think it's verse 10, he, he reprimands Nicodemus and he's like, how can you call yourself a teacher of Israel and not understand these things? And I would I would contend, guys, that in our modern culture and generation, there's a similar 
blight, if you will, amongst believers of bad teachers everywhere. And so this is why Yeshua was facing the same misinformed populace in his day. And the Pharisees were, were mixing in their leavened teachings and their bad teachings with amongst the people. So they were constantly confused. Yeah, even though they claimed to believe in the resurrection, right? Right. Yeah, but then they had no true understanding of it, as explained in the prophets and Enoch as well. That's right. And so they should have. They should have been knowing what he's talking about. And they likely didn't understand what was going on in Jonah. Yeah, it, I, I have no clue. Yeah, that's you're exactly right. Yeah, that's they could have also m misunderstood Jonah or the idea of how he was resurrected. But um, I just think it's uh, it's interesting that he would equate immediately the sign of Jonah to him being the only sign the Pharisees would see in, in his generational lifetime while he's in front of them. And I would I would strongly suggest that it's the resurrection itself that Jonah was resurrected. People saw it. That's what gave his message to Nineveh. Wait. Yeah. Does that make sense? Because yeah, Sean, if I can interject real quick, just for yeah, viewers maybe not familiar with the first resurrection and and stuff like that, um, Jonah resurrected, but back into his mortal body. Okay, guys, um, the difference between Yeshua and Jonah is that Yeshua resurrected into a first fruits immortal body, where Jonah was just put back into his normal body, just like Lazarus and just like other people that we see, you know, Elijah doing and and some of the apostles doing. Okay, I just don't, I want to throw that out there, just. That's a good in point. Case there's any confusion. Yeah, great point. Yeah, there's there's normal resurrections, and I, it's crazy to even put those two words together, right? There's a normal resurrection we see in Scripture, uh, ten different times people are resurrected under from different prophets, different things happen, um, and then there is what's called the first resurrection events, which Yeshua Jesus is the first fruits of, meaning he's the first one to participate in that type of resurrection, which Paul explains in First Corinthians 15 where he received a spiritual body and not resurrected back into his earthy body. So that's, there's a big difference there. And, um, and that's where, yeah, Jonah would have just been back into his earthy body, which is why, you know, he wants to die again in chapter four, right? <laughs> Jonah, Jonah like sits down after, and here's the crazy part from a, from an evangelistic perspective. Okay. He goes to a pagan city and he tells them to repent. Now, yes, there were probably some scattered brethren there, right, from the first Assyrian invasion. And this is what we surmise as far as the timeline of Jonah, that uh, Assyria had already invaded the northern kingdoms and scattered them and taken many into captivity in Babylon, and that uh, he's going over there to tell them to repent. But it says the king of Assyria repented and put on sackcloth. That's a big deal, guys. That's a big deal. Yeah. And, and it said it took him three days, I guess, to, to walk the span of the city. Of Nineveh, that's a big city, guys. You can cover 10 miles in a day if you're at a regular walking pace. So just that's maybe for another episode. But <laughs> just think about it for two just seconds. That's a there. massive city. Um, so but at the same time, you know, it says that he came in. He told him, you know, he gave him his message to repent. I, I don't know exactly how it goes down. Did he ask to speak with the leaders of the exiled uh, Hebrews? Did he ask to go speak to the king directly? You know, it doesn't really tell us, but it says that he gave his message of repentance and they obeyed. That's right. So here's here's the bigger thing, guys. And this is why if you're going to have a sign that gets people its attention, this is what the Pharisees were asking for in Matthew 12. They were like, well, we'll believe you if you give us a sign. So, you know, the Pharisees were in that context. The Pharisees were wrong to do that because they didn't understand the descriptions from the prophets leading up to the, to the Son of Man showing up anyway. And they were ignoring them or ignorant of them because of their hardened hearts and their hypocritical brood of viper ways. So they're in that context, 
they're saying they're asking for a sign from an evil heart but normally a sign would accompany a prophet to put weight and validity to his words does that make sense Absolutely. and that was how you would get their attention you know and that's um but yeshua is doing crazy stuff left and right you know what i'm saying like he's he's healing people raising people you know he's fulfilling uh, isaiah 61 everywhere and so they should have instantly known okay he's the son of man he's the messiah enoch talked about and isaiah talked about and um you know but they didn't they were refusing to believe in him um and of course it seems like you know if they had the book of apocalypse of baruch and if they had ezra and all of his his writings and they should have easily recognized him right but yeah, that's right um but yeah, it, so they're rejecting him. But in Nineveh, you have pagan king. He hears this Hebrew named Jonah coming over, this prophet. And he's like, oh, really? We need to repent? Well, guys, the definition of repentance is, is doing the deeds of the law. So this, this is a huge story, got huge implications here that uh, we have a pagan king repenting and putting on sackcloth, which is what the Hebrews did when they were turning back from wickedness back to the Torah to do deeds of righteousness. That was like a huge sign they showed people. They put on sackcloth to show they were sincere. And so in this whole event here, Jonah accomplishes his mission. And I, I've always laughed at myself because I'm like, he didn't want to go to begin with because he considered them their enemies because they had just scattered the northern kingdoms. And you know what I'm saying? He, he, he had hatred in his heart for him. He didn't want to go. And he's like, because he knew the father would show mercy to them if they repented. You know, he, he knew the father's ways really well. Um, and so I always just wonder, like, if he <laughs> so in a in a BuzzFeed Saturday Night Live style fashion, I see this like in my head where like he's, you know, he's still drying off. He, you know, he's kind of at the beach and people saw him get up and they saw him resurrect or whatever. I don't know exactly how that played out, but just humor me. And so <laughs> and they, they see that um, they see him, you know, they see the sign of Jonah that he resurrected. And he's like drying himself off and they're like, oh, my gosh, are you OK? And he's like, you guys should repent. Like he just says it off the just under his breath, doesn't want anyone to hear. He just yeah. needs to fulfill what God told him to do, but he doesn't really want to be there. And and he's like, You guys should repent. And like <laughs> that guy freaks out. Like he told the, the only person he shouldn't have told. And that guy runs to everybody and tells everybody, you know, I just saw a dude come out of the mouth of a whale and uh he's been sent by God. And I saw him come back to life and he told us we need to repent. And like that was the, like the last person you should have told, you know. Yeah. And so I just imagine this hilarious scene where Jonah just starts this cascade of events of spreading the message throughout Nineveh. Well, it starts, <laughs> John, it actually, it starts even just on the ship, right? With the mariners right at the end there, they actually give sacrifices to Yahweh when they see that the tempest, it becomes a calm and they say, well, okay, well, this Yahweh God, he's, he's obviously quite the, quite the character. We should probably uh, look into that, right? <laughs> so even, even when he's fleeing, he's, he's helping save people. It's funny. Yeah, that's uh, it's hilarious, man. Um, yeah, that's a great catch. That's a <laughs> so yes. I, in my in my brain, I see a funny sketch comedy about it. But ultimately, the message got out, and I think it's fascinating that this pagan king does repent. Um, now, of course, if we look in the history down the timelines, we see that Assyria did get judged like a hundred years later. Um, they got invaded, and there's actually in secular history there's a story about a king who became monotheistic, and that the other kings of his day tried to overthrow him because they didn't like that they because he stopped worshiping multiple gods he stopped being polytheistic and i wonder if this is the king that jonah went to in that time period very fascinating little little nugget there in secular history that doesn't have a lot of description 
But uh, ultimately, guys, what we're putting forth here is if you don't understand Sheol, then Jonah is a mystery to you. You're going to make up crazy stories that, that have that don't resonate with people's hearts or minds because it doesn't even match what Jesus explained about it. You know what I mean? So yeah. then you can understand better what Jesus was saying to the people in front of him. And more importantly, you can understand, um, you know, other all these other passages, you know, like the dead in Christ shall rise, not the dead in Christ shall ascend, descend. The dead in Christ shall rise. You know what I'm saying? So even in the directional language of the first resurrection, it all matters. And that's why this this very generic word called hell, that's been that meaning has been stolen and kidnapped by the Catholic system. And they've turned it into this horrible place of torture and torment. But that word just means Sheol or Hades, as Jesus talked about it. And it just it's just a place, a receptacle for the righteous and the unrighteous um, to await either to be resurrected or to go into judgment. And the moment they're resurrected out of that place is the day he returns. And that's why otherwise you don't know where they're coming from if you don't know where they've been stored. Right. Or as as Baruch put it, where they've been preserved, you know, so. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and for those who are still following along with us, um, you know, hell is contextually referred to as, you know, Gehenna in the Greek, right? And Gehenna was this place outside of Jerusalem where waste and, you know, um, it was an area where it was constantly burning. It was a, it was a place for people to dump their garbage and, and whatnot. So, and yeah, that kind of corresponds to the Old Testament where it talks about the, you know, Tophet, right? The valley the valley of, uh, of Tophet. Yes, so, Gehenna is the is a Greek word for the lake of fire and just yeah. a simple little search uh, to see strong concordance. It'll show you that when they use Gehenna, they're talking about the lake of fire and that in the old Testament it, in Isaiah 30, it's mentioned as Tophet is what they call it. Yeah. So in Hebrew. So and Enoch, uh, Enoch just talks about it as this crazy fire. Yeah. That never goes out. <laughs> right. Which is why we would see in revelation. Was it 19? Or is it Revelation 20 where it says this Revelation 19? 19 yeah. The beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, and it says the smoke of their torment rises forever. Their torment, which is a, is a generic word being used there for them being burned up, right? They're extinguished from existence. Their their soul is destroyed in Gehenna, as Matthew 10 28 tells us. But it's the smoke that rises forever, matches perfectly with what Ken just said from Enoch. Is it Enoch chapter 15 or chapter 10 that Enoch talks about that? I'm trying to remember. Chapter, uh, is it 15? Because we did a show, we did the show on it. And I just can't remember. I think it was episode three, but um, but yeah, I mean that's exactly that's exactly right. This fire never goes out, and it's under the supervision of the Messiah, because he judges people and throws them there. So it's a big deal, basically. <laughs> it's big. Yeah, it's because apparently big. it's already been ready back in the days of Isaiah, because he's talking about it how it's already ready for him. And it's yeah. ready in the days of Enoch. Stoking the fire, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, so did you see any other questions in the comment section that you want to address? Uh, I was scanning. There was one question back probably about 15 minutes ago or so where um, someone had mentioned that there's three compartments mentioned in chapter 22 of Enoch. And yes, there is. And if you look at chapter um 21 of Enoch, I believe it is, it actually refers to the place where the angels and the unclean spirits, the fallen angel, I shouldn't say fallen angels, the watcher angels that rebelled and took women in Genesis 6, um, they were put in chains in place there, along with the unclean spirits, the uh, the spirits of their offspring that were killed during the flood. So um, and, yeah, and that compartment is actually 
I believe is one of the compartments out of the three that's in the greater Sheol. Sheol is, you know, it's a massive compartment that's split into three different divisions. And I think that's what Isaiah 14 and other places refers to as the sides of the pit. Yeah, exactly. Which is what the, the demoniac, the legion, the demons said, don't, you know, to Jesus, please don't send us to the pit, send us to those pigs. Um, because there is a place where they're stored, the unclean spirits and, you know, uh, which is why in Isaiah 14, if you look up that word in the Hebrew, where it says the spirits of the, I think it's verse seven, like you read earlier about the, uh, the, the, you know, the guy who goes down to Sheol and the other uh, kings of the nations rise and they're surprised to see him. Um, and it says the you stirred the spirits of the Nephilim, or excuse me, the spirits of the dead. But in the Hebrew, that word is Rephaim. Yeah. yeah, which is crazy. So, um, yeah, that's a specific compartment, in my opinion. And I think Ken agrees. I agree. Yeah, 100%. That's the third compartment. We were just trying to focus on the other two because it has to do with the day of the Lord and the resurrection. Yeah. So, um, and I think it's the lowest part of the comp of the greater shield. Yeah, if we're if we're talking directionally, yeah, it's lower than the other two. Also, also referred to guys as Tartarus in Second uh, Peter. Because what did Luke sixteen in that parable Jesus talked about how the the rich man who was in emotional torment and agony he looked up right is that not mistaken he looked he looked up and saw in Abraham's bosom was it up or across I can't remember we can go we pull it up real quick yeah I'm go back there real quick. But I, it seems to me that um, these are just like there's multiple layers of the ferment. It seems to be there's multiple layers of shield and that um, the baddest of the baddies are at the bottom. And then the unrighteous men are in the, in the middle. And then the, the righteous awaiting the resurrection are kind of at the top in this pleasant place where there's a spring, the bright spring of water. So, um, yeah, here it is. Uh, uh, da, 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 then the poor man died. Yeah, it says at verse 23, in Hades, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't mean he looked He looked up. He could just be looking in the distance. Yeah. But anyway, to me, it, it would make sense, though, if he's up and not. I, I mean, that's just. Yeah, that's, I would like to think that the righteous are in an elevated position in Sheol. In yeah, a way. it would make sense with a lot of other things that we read, but. Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe they're literally just across from each other, you know. And but I don't know. Either way, guys, uh, thanks for sticking with us. It's been a little bit longer episode than normal, but it's a big topic, and we wanted to make sure that we're reading from Scripture and not just throwing our opinion on this the whole time. Because the Scripture has a lot to say about this this particular topic of Sheol, because it's where everyone. I mean, unless you're alive and remain, as First Thessalonians four sixteen talks about, at the return of the Lord. Everyone else that dies is going to Sheol, and we're either going to await judgment or to await the resurrection. And uh, I pray that uh, we all have the disposition in the heart of Jonah, who uh, who knew where he was going to be, or the heart of Baruch, who knew where he was going to be. You know, and that's um, because that's where I, I would encourage everyone to, to walk in the commandments of God, uh, model your life, your heart, and your behavior after Yeshua, our example, our Messiah. Um, our Elohim, our God, um, who is the, you know, the representative of the Father that we that will be our God and our King of Zion, and uh, because He He led the way, He showed us how to be and how to behave so that we could have eternal life and be resurrected. Okay, so that's why when the lawyer told him, you know, when the lawyer asked him in Luke ten, he's like, "What do I got to do to inherit eternal life?" And the lawyer answered Jesus out of the commandments, and Jesus said, "If you do those, you'll live." So he told us directly, us doing the commandments and faith and obedience is how we inherit eternal life. And I just want to encourage folks right to... Right out of Deuteronomy, Sean. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. It's right out of Deuteronomy.
Um, and it's, it's the essential terms of the covenant itself. It's the essential premise of us walking in faith and obedience. That's why in Revelation 12, the dragon attacks those who keep the commandments of God and the faith and testimony of Jesus. You know, so, um, so I just want to encourage everyone towards that. And, and Cam, we can do a quick prayer to, to close the show unless you see any other comments you'd like to address. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not seeing anything sticking out here. Oh, and real quick, I, a couple of times during the episode, Ken, we mentioned how uh, Ken and I do another show on my channel, Kingdom in Context. It's called Honor Kings. We do it every Saturday night. And so um, you guys are welcome to go check out that show. It's a lot of fun. We did, we're currently digging into Enoch. Um, just that's all we're doing is just dissecting Enoch. But it's this show. It's this uh, channel here, Kingdom in Context. This is our most recent. Uh, this one it's called Enoch Reveals the Tree of Life. It's episode eight. But we've already, you know, we've done full eight full episodes now where we're just digging in line by line in Enoch and trying to match it up to the canon of 66. And and uh, it, it's it's an amazing book. You guys are welcome to join us over there. We do that every Saturday night. Yeah. And, if you if you see us next Saturday night, we might be revealing what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. Exactly. We just <laughs> talked about the tree of life last week and the tree of knowledge of good and evil is coming up and uh, we're excited about it. So, yeah. Um, but also, can, you guys follow follow um, Justin at uh, Christian Truthers as well. He's got some good videos. Yeah, he does. I actually really like the one he just put out about John G. Lake because when I went to Bible college, they held John G. Lake in high esteem, and there was there was some interesting things said about him. And I think um, I think Justin did a great job breaking down that concept. You know, of yeah. so sorry, Sean. Um, someone in the chats here is asking what time on Saturday. It's um, was it? It, well, seven, it's, seven. yeah, it's, I mean, it depends on where you are in the world. Um, it, we do it, we put it out in the evening time. So for me personally, it, where I live in Colorado, it's Mountain Standard Time at 7 p.m. For Ken, where he lives, it'd be 10 p.m. I'm not sure where you live. So just you want to try to find find your time zone. But in the evening, Saturday evenings after Shabbat is over, we, we release the episode. So yeah. Ken, do you want to pray us out this week? Yeah, sure, man. Okay, brother. Father, thank you so much for this evening. Um, thank you for your word. It's amazing. And it's it's bread. And we live by it, Father. And I just thank you that um, your spirit opens our eyes to things that um, we may not see, Father, if we if we um, come to your word with, you know, with flesh, with... Um, the wrong intentions, Father. And so I just pray that when we read your word, God, we would um, we would glean what you want us to understand in it. And Father, I believe that things that Sean and I were discussing this evening, um, you know, Sheol, Hades, is a, an important thing for for us as believers to understand and and to implement into our uh, preaching the gospel, Father, to those in this world. And so we thank you that you're an amazing Father who's thought of these things before you even created everything that you knew we were going to need a place to, to go when we die and that you had provided us a way through your son to come out of that place. And so, Father, we just thank you so much for that. We love your son and we love your, your Torah, your laws, Father, your, your instructions, which are good for us. And, Father, we just thank you so much for this evening and, and for our ability to get together. And uh, I just pray for all the, the people watching, Father, that um, whatever they're going through, the hardships in their life, Father, the struggles, the persecutions, Father, that you would just empower them, Father, with your spirit. And um, 
yeah, just help them to become overcomers. And um, if they are father, if they think about it really, really deep, that Yeshua has overcome everything and they have salvation if they want it. So it's an amazing, an amazing gospel message. And I just thank you so much, Father, for who you are. And we love you in Yeshua's name. Oh, thanks, Ken. That was great, man. Amen to that. Um, thanks for joining us, guys. Uh, we really appreciate you. And uh, I'm just going to play our little, um, little theme song for the show, and that'll that'll lead us out. So join us next week. We'll be back, and uh, we'll be discussing The Road to Rescue, which is all about all the prophets' descriptions of the day of the Lord and how he's going to rescue us when the time comes. So um, stick with us, and we hope to see you back here next week. Okay, guys? We appreciate you guys. it.